0: This is an ABC podcast. A head of lettuce had a longer shelf life than the last British PM. So, will the new guy be able to turn over a new leaf in the UK? Hey there, Ange McCormack with you for the Hack Podcast. And yeah, the UK has a new Prime Minister. His name's Rishi Sunak. So, who is he? How will he go? And how will he make sure he lasts longer than Liz Truss and that iceberg lettuce? Plus, can you imagine buying your own home at 19 years old? In a moment, you'll hear a really amazing story about how a teenager went from homeless to homeowner without the help of rich parents. Those stories are coming up on this episode. If you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write Me Too as a reply to this tweet. That set off a worldwide trend. We need to be encouraging people to not feel ashamed. On Triple J. Five years ago, the New York Times published a story that would spark a global reckoning. In October 2017, the paper revealed how Harvey Weinstein had been abusing women and covering it up for decades. Not long after the Me Too movement kicked off around the world, millions of women spoke up about their experiences of sexual harassment and assault. After that wave of disclosures, though, there's been a spike in legal action against women who speak out and the media outlets who publish publish their stories. The effect is a silencing, advocates argue, of women who want to speak out about their abuse but can't. I want to know your thoughts on this. How has the Me Too movement affected you? Maybe you've tried to seek justice yourself. Text me 0439 All of this is explored in a new book by Australian barrister and human rights lawyer, Jennifer Robinson. The book's called How Many More Women Exposing How the Law Silences Women. I'm really excited to have Jennifer Robinson with me now. Jennifer, thanks so much for speaking with me. Great to be here. Jennifer, your book talks about all the ways the law silences women who have experienced sexual violence. You call it lawfare. I really thought that was a clever term. How does the justice system silence women when it comes to sexual violence?
1: Well, as we outline in the book, at the moment you are raped or suffer sexual assault or domestic violence, the law actually regulates what you can say, who you can say it to, and when. And there are legal risks at every turn. So, for women who have had this experience and are thinking about speaking out or thinking about going to the police, you really need to think through your options. But they're most focused on the civil justice system. So, rules, uh, laws like defamation, being sued for defamation for making an allegation of gender based violence, or The kinds of contracts we're seeing that silence women, so non-disclosure agreements, what we saw have some game visibility around the Weinstein case. So I do think, you know, we we want to show people what we see in our practice and be able to inform more people than we could ever advise in our chambers. Let's
0: focus on the cases where women do speak out successfully when they aren't sued for defamation or when they win those cases. How powerful is it for survivors to tell
1: their stories? It is so important for women to be able to speak about their experience of gender-based violence. And we saw that in 2021, in the lead up to March for Justice in Australia, that as each of these high profile women, women who became high profile after they spoke out, Daniel Money, Grace Tame, Brittany Higgins, and other Chanel Contos, we saw that that creates a movement and it encourages more women to speak out. And that's why we say it's so important that women are not placed by the law in silos of silence, because it's... One woman speaking out encourages more people to speak out, encourages the kinds of conversations and law reform conversations, the protest movements that we've seen. And that's what really motivated us to want to write this book. We want to make sure this is protected as a matter of public interest because we have a pandemic of violence against women in our society. We need to be able to speak about it in order to, be able to grapple with it and to be able to resolve it.
0: Yeah. And you talk about silence there. I mean, not everyone wants to speak about their sexual assault and that's their decision. That's fine. But for those that do want to and can't because of some of those legal barriers you're talking about, because, you know, they aren't being listened to or, you know, they just can't have the access of of speaking out, basically. What is the cost of not speaking out? That isolation, that silence, that loneliness?
1: It's a really good question. And For this book, we interviewed women survivors, lawyers, journalists around the world, and it was really telling for us that so many of the women who wanted to speak out but hadn't, and I mean, people we've had come into our offices, clients, is that it compounds their trauma. For many women, the ability to speak out is a way of, is it a step towards healing? Now, that might not be true for everyone, and every woman must make the best decision for her What we're saying in this book is that we know that when women speak out, they find a sense of solidarity with others, they find a sense of healing. And given that that is the case, we need to protect their ability to be able to do it and to make that choice if they so choose.
0: Let's think about some young women who are listening now. They've grown up watching Me Too kick off five years or so ago and it was this huge healing moment of that solidarity that you talk about. They've then seen high-profile cases of women speaking out and seen how they've been treated and bullied online, torn to shreds. What effect do you think that evolution of the movement has had on young women? Do you think they feel more or less empowered to speak out than before?
1: I feel really concerned about the trajectory of where we're going. Again, this is why we wrote this book. It's not just the avalanche of legal actions we're seeing being taken against women who choose to speak out, but it's the way they're treated in the media and in the online space. And how many women, how many more women will be silenced and decide not to speak out because they saw their friends or their family, their colleagues, their you know, people they that are near and dear to them mocking or ridiculing Amber Heard's testimony in that case. Um, seeing the media undermine women's credibility using all the old tropes about real victim. Who is a real victim? Who is who's not a real, real victim? What was she wearing? Had she had anything to drink? You know, why did she stay? You know, what what was it about her behaviour that caused this victim blaming attitudes? This silences women, and I know this silences women because I hear it from my colleagues. You know, after the Depp trial in the United States, women deciding not to take their cases forward, not wanting to speak out, being threatened by their perpetrators saying, don't be an amber, no one's going to believe you. This does have an effect on the women who are observing it. And understandably so. We have to do better. We have to create safer online spaces and the media must do better in terms of how we talk about it. And we need to educate the public about gender based violence.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the Amber Heard case there, which I really want to talk about because you represented her in the UK in that defamation case where she or or rather the the newspaper that Johnny Depp was suing won. I want to know what it was like working on that case because you talk about in the book showing up to court, being scared for her and yourself by people, throngs of people, hurling abuse. We saw what happened online. What was it like representing and, and working on that case?
1: I represented Amber in respect to the case that Johnny Depp took against the Sun newspapers in London, and I spent several years working with her to prepare her evidence as a witness in the case and helping the newspaper prove the truth of those allegations. And in the end, a judge, an expert and experienced judge, determined that Depp had been violent towards her on 12 separate occasions. People forget about this judgment, and I encourage people, if you are interested in this case, to go and read it. Because he sets out, the judge sets out meticulously the evidence and why he reached that conclusion. We then, of course, saw Johnny Depp, Sue Amber personally in the United States in a case I was not involved in uh, where a jury found completely the opposite, which for media lawyers is is unusual because it's much more difficult to, to win a defamation case in the United States than it is in the United Kingdom. So I just think it's important to remember that a judge in the UK did find that it was true. So that being the case, it was incredibly demoralizing to see the public online reaction in social media towards Amber, the online trolling like I've never seen in my career, the misogyny, the threats of violence towards her, towards her small child, towards me personally as her lawyer. It really made me question how far we've come as a society. And the fact that the same old Tropes about real vi- who who is and isn't a real victim played out so publicly in that US trial, and sadly, I think affected the outcome and the decision of the jury is really quite shocking.
0: And and Amber Heard, when she lost that US trial, she made this really powerful statement and said, you know, the result is a setback. It sets back the idea that violence against women is to be taken seriously. I I know you weren't involved in in that case, but you were watching on. I mean, do you feel the same way? How how did it feel seeing that trial undo, in a way, some of the work that you'd done in the UK? Well,
1: after the UK judgment came down, we had domestic violence charities saying, this is such an important decision for women. Um, this, this shows that women will not be silenced and that their cases will be heard and that they will be treated well in the courts. And to then see what happened in the United States was, just as Amber said in her statement, a huge setback for women. It was a huge setback, not just because of the decision in the case. And frankly, I don't think the jury understands the law, but it, because of what it signalled to women everywhere, because of the public discussion around it, because of what we saw online, there were so many TikTok videos um, mocking evidence of domestic violence and sexual violence and children were absorbing this. I had friends calling me saying, my gosh, my child is has just like regurgitated what he's just seen on TikTok about this case and it is so troubling. We need to be educating kids against this kind of discussion. And it's really, to me, is a huge setback and it is having a global silencing effect. I cannot tell you the number of women and lawyers who have contacted me or spoken to me quietly come to these book events and have mentioned that they are they don't feel safe
0: because of what we've seen happen in this case. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Angie McCormack and I'm chatting with Jennifer Robinson about her book, How Many More Women. On the Triple J text line, someone says, I couldn't take my case further with the police for fear the circumstances would impact my job prospects. Someone else says, I feel like a confident, empowered woman and would never speak out for all of these reasons. Jennifer, what do you think it says about our justice system or society as a whole when these high profile cases make it to court and then the media interest in the case tends to be more about the victim or survivor than the perpetrator. I'm thinking, yes, like the Amber Heard case, but more recently, the media have been referring to the Bruce Lerman trial in the ACT as the Brittany Higgins trial. What effect does that have?
1: Precisely the same effect. The media has a responsibility to cover these cases in a more sensitive way When a woman makes a complaint whether you're in a criminal justice context or in a defamation case the way the media coverages it the way that society treats it is that she is on trial when it should actually be the opposite and the media plays a role in either propagating or deterring violence we know that the un talks about this. there are guidelines about how the media ought to be reporting on gender-based violence and we need to do better the media needs to acknowledge the structural obstacles that women face in coming forward the media needs to be mindful when they're reporting on these cases how they speak about complainants. Of course, there's a contempt risk that that arises in all of these cases, but in criminal cases rather. But it's really important that we do better because of the message that it sends to young women. And we know that one in three women will suffer sexual violence in her lifetime. We know that. An Australian woman is killed every 10 days by an intimate partner. These figures are terrifying. That's why women's ability to speak out and encourage encouraging women to come forward and report when they need to is so important and is a matter of public interest.
0: Earlier this month, the government released this national plan to end violence against women in a single generation. It's a bold idea and it does talk about justice reform like within family law, but it doesn't mention reforming defamation law. And this is something that your book talks about a lot. Can we end violence against women without making changes to defamation law in Australia especially? Well,
1: we've just had changes to the Australian defamation laws, at least in most states, where there's been an introduction of a public interest test, which is this, is modelled on the same test that we've had in our law in the United Kingdom for 10 years. And I do think that that is an important test because one of the points we make in the book is that because of the extent of gender-based violence in our society, it is a matter of public interest for women to speak about it. And that public interest defence ought to protect women's ability to speak about their experiences. And judges and lawyers need to start arguing that, that it is important for women to be able to speak about it. But, of course, we, I think there's, there's a lot more. It's not just the law as it's, as it's read on the books. It's about how it operates in practice. And a very real issue in this country in particular is the cost. Most media organisations can barely afford to defend these defamation cases, let alone an individual woman who is sued by the person she's has accusation about. And I think we need to start to grapple with this and figure out more cost-efficient ways because what does our right to free speech mean? Women have a right to free speech about and to tell their story. We need to protect that right in this society. But what does that right mean if you cannot afford to defend it? A
0: lot of my listeners right now will be um, sexual assault survivors themselves or have a history of trauma and they'll be listening and and maybe thinking about the difficulty in in seeking justice um, for what they've been through and maybe be feeling a little bit disheartened by what we're talking about. And I think it's fair for them to think that. What's your message for someone in that position who's thinking about what's happened to them and feeling a bit hopeless about what options they have?
1: Well, first, I am so sorry to anyone who's listening who has had an experience of gender-based violence. No one should ever be put through that. And one of the reasons we wrote this book is because we want you to be informed because to be informed is to be empowered. And I also want to acknowledge that for many of the women we interviewed, justice takes many forms and many women choose not to go through the criminal justice system because they don't want to put themselves through it. And that is a legitimate choice. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. It is a question for you to make that decision. And no one should question your truth because you chose not to go to the police. We hear a lot, oh, well, it can't be true because if it's true, she would have gone to the police. Lots of women we spoke to do not want to put their perpetrator in prison, do not want to put themselves through that process. And in fact, what they actually want is for it to stop. They don't want it to happen to anyone else. And in those circumstances, women should be able to talk about it. We should be able to warn other women. We should be able to have these conversations. We should be able to find support in friends and colleagues and, if necessary, tell your story to the media. But we want you to be informed of the risks. It is possible to speak out, but you must take advice and be careful about how you go about it. That's all I'll
0: say about it. Jennifer Robinson, thanks so much for your book and for speaking with me today on Triple J. So nice to speak with you. Thanks very much. Hack on Triple J. That was Jennifer Robinson there. Her book, co-authored with Kina Yoshida, is called How Many More Women? Exposing How the Law Silences Women. I really recommend it. And if you or anyone you know needs help, you can always call 1-800-RESPECT or Lifeline on 13 11 14.
2: Hack. I've had almost all my stress from my entire life relieved of me and that is such a strange feeling.
0: On Triple J. It's pretty rare to hear positive stories when we talk about housing, either renting or buying as a young person. Finding a place to call home in the current market is hard enough. But imagine going from being a homeless teenager to managing to buy your own place without the help of your parents at just 19 years old. Trans woman April Young recently did that. Her story is pretty incredible. And Asher Couch met, met April in Albany, Western Australia and has this story.
2: So this is my house. Do you want a coffee, hot chocolate? I've got
3: tea. 19-year-old April Young is adjusting to a new rhythm. What's your favourite place in the house?
2: I'm going to have to say just the couch, just watching TV. There's a beautiful big large window and I get to sit in the sunlight early mornings and just feel the warmth on my skin. This is the living room and...
3: She recently showed me through her new place and she pointed out all the bits she was proud of and what she has plans to change.
2: I have lots of plans to plant different plants and get rid of the grass at the back and replace it with clovers.
3: April's been a homeowner for just over two months now, after buying a $230,000 two-bedroom unit in Albany, five hours south of Perth.
2: I've had almost all my stress from my entire life relieved of me in the last three weeks. And that is such a strange feeling. You don't realise how stressed you are until it disappears from your entire being.
3: This unit means so much to April. When she was 16, she left her parents' home.
2: Uh, My childhood was definitely quite different to a lot of other Australians that I now share my life with. Um, My parents were very, very religious and that definitely affected my childhood.
3: April is trans and while being homeless is a terrible prospect, she knew she couldn't live with her parents anymore.
2: When I left my parents the first time and second, third and fourth time, at the time I was just what I thought was just a gay male. They really, really did not enjoy that. They were thinking about taking me to America where conversion therapy is legal. Uh, Luckily we didn't go to America, they just didn't have time before I left them again. I didn't get to accept that I was trans until I had cut out the idea that I was never going to see my parents and that I had to completely cut them out of my life. Only after then was the point where I could accept myself as being trans and I either had to leave them by physically leaving them and living elsewhere or I wasn't going to survive my mental state living with them anymore.
3: April's experience is far from rare. WA's Telethon Kids Institute did a survey in 2016 which found one in five trans young people struggle with accommodation issues and homelessness. After periods of couch surfing, April found herself on the doorstep of a youth support centre in Albany called Young House. It's here that things started to turn around for her.
4: Uh, With eight beds we have a, you know, a continual turnover of young people coming through,
2: which is tough.
3: This is Ian Clark, a retired local police superintendent who helps to run the refuge which gives crisis accommodation for people aged 15 to 25.
4: We effectively start from the, the ground up. We're talking as simple as basic human health care, you know having to go and get a job for example, going for a job interview, um, financial guidance, cooking skills, homemaker skills, what are the risks you need to think, what's mould? All these sorts of really basic things that most people take for granted.
3: If the thought of home ownership is super scary to you or seems so far out of reach, you're probably wondering how April turned things around and saved enough for a deposit. Well, she says living at Young House, as well as time spent couch surfing and walking and riding her bike everywhere, kept her expenses down. She worked and worked and worked at her jobs at Hungry Jacks and Woolies.
2: I was doing full-time school Monday to Friday, but then after that I would be at work at Hungry Jacks from 3.30 till 11pm and I continued this slightly unhealthy habit of working and watching money grow. She
3: managed to save 40,000 bucks and paid 31 grand on the deposit. And after couch surfing for ages... She finally has her own.
2: I mean it's pretty comfortable and I sleep on it quite a lot. Maybe it's just because I'm used to it. Anytime I would have the best sleep would always be on a couch for whatever reason.
3: Ian Clark reckons April's story shows the power of early intervention and support and the need to increase capacity and in services like this.
4: I know that with young people in particular, we have a genuine opportunity to make a difference to those people. And if we can do that, then we've got to take it. Because literally You know, a million dollars spent now will save you five, ten million dollars down the trade.
3: At the moment, Young House can only offer three months accommodation at a time, something that Ian Clark would like to change. Those kind of time limits were super stressful for April, but she's so grateful for that help. Did Young House save your life?
2: Yeah, they actually really did. I definitely wouldn't be here if they didn't step in and... A year ago, I couldn't have believed that I would be here now.
0: Hack on Triple J. Asha Couch reporting there with producing by Angel Parsons. All right, let's check in on the UK. Hack.
4: I can confirm that we have received one valid nomination. Rishi Sunak is therefore elected as leader of the Conservative Party.
1: On Triple J.
0: Yeah, the drama in UK politics continues. Britain has a new leader. Conservative Rishi Sunak has become the third PM in seven weeks after the resignation of Boris Johnson and then the very short-lived Liz Truss. Rishi Sunak is British Indian. He's the first UK PM of colour. And at 42 42 years old, one of the youngest. He's also super rich. He's married to one of the UK's wealthiest women. Let's find out more about Rishi Sunak and what the future of the UK will look like. Ben Willings is an expert in British politics from Monash Uni. He's with with me now. Ben, some people will be hearing this name for the first time. So tell us, who is Rishi Sunak?
4: Oh, well, he's the son of uh, migrants uh, of an Indian background who came from East Africa. There was a lot of um, uh, Indian migrants to East Africa when both India and East Africa were parts of the British Empire. And... Um, his parents uh, arrived uh, in the late uh, 70s he was born in 1980 um but he um his his parents uh, had you know what what you might call good uh, occupations you know, doctors and um uh they sent their son to uh, a pretty um wealthy private school or a pretty well endowed uh, private school and then he did the usual thing uh, that uh, british Prime ministers do went to Oxford University, uh, and um, he t- he turned to politics. He's a finance person, really, but he turned to politics uh, in, in the last um, uh, in the previous decade. Uh, Been a member of Parliament for a relatively short period of time, uh, and through a slightly convoluted process, uh, has found himself um, first of all as a uh, the, the the treasurer, that is to say, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the British, um, uh, the way it's called in Britain. Um, lost out to Liz Truss seven weeks ago, uh, but now finds himself uh, Prime Minister again after Liz Truss's short tenure. So uh, uh, he's in the top job.
0: Mm, I think um, a fairly convoluted process is a a kind way to put the uh, chaos that (laughs) British politics has been in. But um, Rishi Sunak is also the youngest uh, UK PM in more than 200 years. Will, Will he have a youthful style of leadership, do we think? Will we see that kind of millennial nature in him come through at all?
4: Well, look, I, look. He's got a PR job on his hands for reasons that you mentioned. He, he's the richest uh, person in Parliament, and uh, he, he married he married into to wealth as well, um, uh, as you mentioned. So, um, I, and, and he has been sort of trying to project him, uh, an image of himself as uh, you know, as you have to do in uh, in, in British as, and Australian politics, so slightly less well off than you probably really are and um so uh, you know w- whether we'll be taking to tiktok uh, maybe caught miss that boat i don't know but uh you know, um, uh, the, we will be seeing him on, on various forms of, of of media as he tries to uh, bed down in the in the new job.
0: Yeah, he's, I mean, on, on that, um, his, you know, extreme wealth, how, how much of a barrier will that be for him to relate to the UK public? I mean, they're going through a cost of living crisis, an economic crisis. Is that going to be um, a, a bit of a pressure point for him to be a relatable leader?
4: I think it is a political difficulty that that he'll need to address somehow. Uh, As you mentioned, the whole context for UK politics at the moment is uh, about cost of living, and he has, uh, I mean, in some sense, he was under a lot of pressure when he was the treasurer um, because of the tax status of his uh, wife, and his wife wasn't paying taxes in the United Kingdom, even though they lived there, and, of course, so so there was very uh the, the, the in some ways the, the class politics of this will will outweigh the the fact that he is the first british indian uh british asian i should say to um uh be prime minister so uh, there, there is a lot of pressure on him in terms of how he presents himself and and he can't come across as too uh too remote because his his wealth has kind of shielded him from the experiences of the majority of the british population. So he does have a job on his hands, yes.
0: You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack. We're talking to Ben Willings from Monash Uni about the UK's new PM. They've had three PMs in seven weeks. It's absolutely crazy. Um, Someone says, new reality show idea, crazy rich politicians. Someone else says, elderly millennial is about the only relatable part of the new British PM. The man himself said he doesn't know a single person from the working class. Yeah, plenty of issues as we were just talking about in terms of class and, and how the new pm is going to relate to the public um, ben how popular is rishi sunak in the uk i mean if he do we get the sense if he um was in an election tomorrow would he have the hold the popularity of the country or or how do the how does the uk people feel about him
4: well look i mean we, i think we need to distinguish between him and his party uh, if there was an election tomorrow by all accounts, the Conservative Party would lose, and and that that is quite staggering because they're they're actually sitting on a pretty healthy majority. So the the reaction against the Conservative Party has been exacerbated by the trust uh, episode, um, but it was already on the nose with Boris Johnson and Partygate and all those um, all those issues surrounding Johnson. So um, I, I think in in terms of his personal popularity he does have the advantage of being neither Truss nor johnson so there's been a particularly kind of chaotic uh leadership um in the conservative party since well since since 2019 when johnson won but it, it, initially that seemed like one of johnson's strengths but w- once he'd got brexit done and and the people you know felt that his main job was over there was kind of a question of what are you doing here and his, his handling of the pandemic is—I uh, think there are two ways of seeing it. He either got the big calls right, or, or it was more kind of chaos. And eventually, the, the latter interpretation won out with the, the kind of exposure of his uh, wrongdoings during lockdown. So, um, so he, so Sunak seems kind of calm and sensible, and he's certainly being billed as that uh, already. Mm. And he certainly calmed the, the markets which um, didn't respond at all well to, to Truss's uh, economic uh, politi- politics and policies. Um, however, I do think like the, the problem is the Conservative Party at the moment. It's a damaged brand. They don't have the image of um, economic competence that is so important for them. And, and once that's gone, they're, they're weaker than their Labour opposition on, on key things like education mm. and health. So... Yeah, they're, they're, uh, he's he's got a tough job on his hands for sure.
0: Plenty of challenges ahead, and and just quickly, um, Ben, the opposition in the UK is really calling for an early election. What what are the chances of that happening?
4: Look, uh, technically, uh, Sunak doesn't have to go for about another two years to an election. Um, whether he can withstand the the pressure because he's now the third uh, Prime Minister, the second one that's not been chosen during an election uh, is a political question, and that will depend on uh, all sorts of um, uh, political circumstances Mm. in the months and years
2: ahead.
0: So many challenges ahead and lots of drama to unfold, but Ben Willings, thanks so much for joining us today on Hack.
2: Thank you. Hack on Triple J.
0: That was Ben Willings there. He's an expert in British politics from Monash University. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Hack Podcast. We'll be back with you with more stories tomorrow.